This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. Joining me today is Dr. John Kotcher, Assistant Research Professor at George Mason University's Center for Climate Change Communication. Professor Kotcher is the lead author of a recently published article in Lancet Planetary Health that discusses the results of a survey of international health professionals, moreover physicians, regarding their efforts to advocate for reductions in greenhouse gas emissions. Professor Kotcher, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me here. Uh, Professor Kotcher's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. On background, as Rudolf Virchow, the 19th century German physician, famously stated, physicians are the natural attorneys for the poor, and their social problems should largely be solved by them, close quote. While medical professionals played a role in, for example, signing the 63 Test Ban Treaty and addressing the global AIDS and, por- and polio rather epidemics, they have been noticeably absent in addressing the climate crisis. In the U.S., this helps explain why the healthcare industry has been in some MIA in helping to solve the climate emergency. As listeners of this podcast know, the U.S. healthcare industry's emissions account for 10% of total U.S. greenhouse gases, 25% of global healthcare greenhouse gas emissions, and 4.5% of total global greenhouse gas emissions. In fact, if the U.S. was its own country, it would rank 13th in the world, or if U.S. healthcare, rather, was its own country, it would rank 13th in the world in carbon emissions. Recently, however, a letter drafted by University of Washington's Howard Frumpkin, who I interviewed this past December, and APHA's Dr. Georges Benjamin, whom I interviewed in July 2019, addressed to the Health and Human Services Secretary Becerra, outlining in detailed regulatory policy measures the Secretary should take to address the climate crisis, was co-signed by 65 medical professional associations, including, for example, the Alliance for Nurses for Health Environments, Medical Students for a Sustainable Future, the National Association of Pediatric Nurse Practitioners, and Professor Kotcher's own Center for Climate Change Communication. With me today for my 19th climate crisis-related discussion is, again, John Kotcher. So with that, John, as background, let me uh, begin simply by asking you, can you provide a brief description of Mason's Climate Change Communication Center? Sure. Uh, So we have been around for uh, over a dozen years now at George Mason, and Uh, We conduct a wide variety of research on how to improve public engagement around the issue of climate change. Um, Most of our work focuses uh, on the U.S. context. Um, For instance, uh, we have a longstanding collaboration with the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication, where we conduct uh, two surveys, one in the spring and fall each year, uh, to track public opinion on climate change and support for uh, climate action here in the United States. Um, But in addition to that, we have a a variety of other programs that try to uh, recruit and activate various trusted voices on the issue of climate change. Uh, So, for instance, we have a program called Climate Matters, which works to engage 
TV weathercasters and, and, and journalists to talk more about climate change in their news coverage, um, as well as uh, the Medical Society Consortium on Climate Change and Health, which works to recruit health professionals to talk more about climate change. Okay, thank you. Let's go right into this, uh, your research. Um, before, uh, before you fielded the survey, uh, what did we know about the health professionals' efforts to address the climate crisis? I mean, I guess it's, since you did the survey, the real, the answer is not much, but if you could expound on that. Yeah, so actually there had been a handful of studies, um, most of them in English speaking countries, in particular the United States. Um, and really most of these surveys of health professionals were focused on various subspecialties. So, uh, thoracic specialists or allergy. Uh, and asthma specialists. And what those surveys found is that um, most of those professionals uh, were aware that climate change was happening, believed that it was caused by human activity, um, and were concerned, you know, about the effects of climate change that they said they were already seeing in some of their patients and those they care for. Um, but they felt that they lacked knowledge, that their knowledge about the, the health effects of climate change was still insufficient. Um, and there was some evidence to suggest that they might be willing to engage in um, more public engagement around the issue, more advocacy with policymakers around the issue. Um, but again, it was really limited in scope in terms of, you know, a very U.S. sort of uh, English speaking focus. Great. Thank you. And that's obviously what this survey gets at is to further that learning curve. So let's start with uh, who was solicited and who participated. I mean, I, it was... Uh, uh, the table that uh, outlines participants, I thought was very impressive. Yeah, so we worked with uh, partners at the Global Climate and Health Alliance and the World Health Organization, as well as the World Medical Association to engage a, a wide range of health professionals in various countries around the world. Um, so the approach we take is we reached out to various uh, professional societies and asked for permission to survey their membership. And originally, we uh, our goal was to survey uh, three organizations from each of the, the different World Health Organization uh, regions um, to try and get both geographic diversity and uh, professional diversity. So our goal was within each region to survey one medical uh, professional society, one pediatric society, uh, and one nursing society. Um, it turns out, you know, as, as with many things, the even the best laid plans don't always work out as, right. as you might expect. And after about three months of uh, leveraging contacts uh, through the Global Climate and Health Alliance, World Health Organization and World Medical Association, uh, we were able to uh, get, you know, secure participation from about a dozen uh, different professional societies. Um, but unfortunately, we weren't able to reach our original goal of you know, maximizing both professional and geographic diversity. Um, ne nevertheless, we were able to obtain uh, a really large sample of health professionals. So in total, we had uh, upwards of 4,000, I think almost 5,000 uh, uh, individuals participated in the survey. Um, so it's still quite a large representation of the health field, um, but it certainly is not uh, representative of, of health professionals globally. Okay, uh, thank you. Just per mention of the table, 
British medical, Canadian medical, Indian medical, New Zealand, South African, Chilean, Colombian, uh, etc. Um, let's go to uh, the survey findings. Uh, and let's start, and you noted this relative to the previous research, that's the learning curve. What's the learning curve for health professionals? So let's start with that. And I'll, I'll, I'll spin the question this way. Should we be surprised by respondents' understanding of the problem? Uh, so for example, 81%, and, you know, my personal bias review is that I thought it would be higher. 81% think climate change is mostly or entirely caused by human activities. Uh, only 57% uh, think it will cause moderate, a moderate amount or a great deal of harm to people in their country. And even less, 51% think uh, climate change, or only 51% think climate change will increase poverty due to result in economic hardship, and it goes down from there. 47, just 47%, it will cause heat-related illnesses, rising hunger, malnutrition, 46% uh, inc- will be- believe it will increase vector-borne diseases. So on balance, I, I thought these percentages uh, were a bit low. Are they consistent with the research and confirm that, or what's your sense of this finding? Yeah, that's that's an interesting take. Um, so 80%, I would say 81% uh, saying that climate change is caused by human activities is fairly high. Um, so just by comparison here in the United States among the general population, you know, obviously climate change is politically polarized here in the U.S., mm-hmm. Um, but there it's, uh, you know, I think it's about six in 10 Americans think that climate change is human cause. So it's actually higher than sort of what, you know, the average is here in the U.S. among the general population. Um, but nevertheless, yeah, we obviously we would like to see that number higher. Um, and so, you know, that underscores, you know, part of what we talk about in the article in terms of the need to. Uh, really help educate the health professional community about this issue. And I think that underscores or, uh, you know, I think that's uh, part of the underlying story behind some of those other numbers that you mentioned. Um, You know, the connection between climate change and uh, increased poverty and economic hardship is probably fairly indirect compared to what a lot of health professionals are are you know, used to thinking about in terms of an issue like climate change. And so helping connect those dots, I think, is critically important for uh, for both health professional education going forward, as well as continuing education. Okay, uh, thank you again. So here's a, a, a two sides uh, uh, of the coin. The first side is, can you summarize a survey respondents to your public and policymaker engagement questions? And I'll let you do the work and and cite some of the st- uh, percentages you found in that category. Sure. So so even even if uh, you know some of the risk perceptions are are lacking a, a little bit. Um, so I, I guess actually one 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 point related to the risk perceptions is well we could go even, with that if you'd like. In fact, that, that's really my follow up or other side of the coin question is the risk oh, okay. perception, which I thought equally interesting. Sure. Uh, well, I guess one, one point I wanted to make there is, um, you know, even though some of the perceptions of the current health impacts uh, from climate change are a little bit lacking, uh, sometimes even less than 50%, uh, we do find that six out of 10 or more health professionals 
perceive a wide variety of health impacts from climate change to be increasing uh, over the next 10 years. And this includes things from increased illness due to uh, reduced air quality outside, um, all the way down to increasing violence, conflict, and, and dislocation as a result of climate impacts. Mm-hmm. Okay, let's move on from risk perception. And sure. let's, let's go to um, uh, engagement. What were the percentage findings, uh, findings on public and policy engagement? And then we'll go to the barrier uh, question or the FOB, meaning what would explain the percentages on public and policy making engagement? Sure. Um, so we were really interested in this notion of the extent to which uh, health professionals see advocating mm-hmm. and communicating with the public as well as policymakers as a as a professional responsibility, as part of what it means to be a health professional. Um, and we actually find that there are uh, a large majority of health professionals say that um, they feel they it's health professionals' responsibility to bring the health effects of climate change to the attention of the public as well as policymakers. So 86% think it's uh, their job to bring it to the attention of the public. 90% uh, think it's their job to bring it to the attention of policymakers. Um, and specifically, we also wanted to ask them whether they think that as health, health professionals should actively encourage their own nation's leaders, as well as all the world's leaders to strengthen their nation's or all nation's commitments to achieving the goal of the the Paris Climate Agreement. And there we find about nine out of 10 health professionals think that it's their, that they should be doing this both with their own nation's leaders, as well as all world leaders. Uh, Thank you. But let's, uh, so that's, that's the encouraging news. But when you get into details relative to how, and I'll summarize some of these. So again, um, how uh, engagement or to what extent should health professionals be engaged? Your survey showed only 26% said they were personally willing to participate in a global advocacy campaign uh, by health professionals. And 69, although better, 69% believe their professional society should cut ties with fossil fuel companies, uh, et cetera. So those, those percents were a little more sobering. Yes. And in fact, uh, one of the participating uh, organizations didn't even ask the question about cutting you know, ties with yeah. fossil fuel companies. And I wanted um, to ask you about that. That's the Canadian Medical Society, as you cited, chose to admit the question about divestment from the survey of their members. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I can't speak to the internal, uh, you know, decision making process that, you know, right. that led to that decision. Um but certainly, you know, I think the, the percentage there, as well as the fact that one of the uh, participating societies decided to remove that question altogether, uh, suggests that, you know, some of these societies are a little bit more uncomfortable with, uh, with that particular action. Um, and uh, yeah, so we, one of the things that we were really interested in is beyond just whether health professionals feel a personal responsibility to to advocate with um, world leaders about this issue, we wanted to ask them specifically, were they personally willing to participate in a global advocacy campaign? Mm -hmm. Um, And as you pointed out, only about one in four indicated in the survey, they were, yes, they were definitely willing to personally participate. Um, A number of other uh, participants, 37% said that they they might participate, but they would need more information first. 
Um, and then 27% said that they could support such campaign, even though they couldn't personally participate. Um, we didn't get into the reasons why they couldn't personally participate. And, you know, there, there are a variety of reasons, either professional or personal, um, that could have inhibited them. But, uh, you know, nevertheless, uh, you know, those, those numbers are much more, uh, uneven compared to the, uh, the felt responsibility for acting. Okay, thank you. Let, let's go to barriers, uh, because this explains that helps explain the 26% amongst these other numbers. What were the uh, survey respondents uh, percentages on the barriers identified? So by far, uh, the most common barrier uh, that uh, participants said reduced their willingness to communicate about this issue with the public uh, was a lack of time. Um, they just, you know, health professionals are busy. Um, and uh, they didn't feel like they had time to do this kind of uh, public engagement work. Um, the second most common uh, barrier was uh, a lack of knowledge. They just felt like they needed to, to know more about climate change and health in order to communicate about it. Um, and then next was uh, the belief that engaging with the public wouldn't make a difference. So 31% of mm -hmm. uh, participants cited this as a barrier. Um, little support from their peers, 22% cited this as a barrier. And then uh, relatively few participants uh, also cited, 16% cited that they felt the, the topic was too controversial. And 14% said that they felt that uh, doing public engagement on this issue was too risky for them professionally or personally. Yeah, that 14% really struck me. Although I, I, I can't say I was surprised, but still it, it was sobering to see. Um, there is survey data you uh, acquired relative to percentages concerning uh, resources that they think. So this is on the this is on the solution side. Uh, percentages uh, responses relative to resources that would be helpful for them. So you could just, let's let's go to that. Let's go to uh, how we can improve these percents. What are the opportunities for uh, education, et cetera, such that um, uh, professionals have more confidence uh, to do this work? Sure, sure. So yes, we also asked about a variety of resources that could help uh, address some of these barriers. Excuse me. Um, so 76% said that continuing professional education on climate change and health would be helpful to them, uh, presumably to address some of those uh, insufficiency of, of uh, understanding climate change and health. Um, they also, 76% of respondents said that they wanted more policy statements uh, on climate change and health by their professional associations. 72% uh, said that they would like guidance on how to make their workplace more sustainable. 69% um, said that action alerts on when and how to advocate with policymakers would be helpful to them, uh, presumably to reduce some of the, the time investment needed in trying to figure out uh, what what they should be doing to advocate with their leaders and who they should be advocating with. Um, 69% said that training to communicate more effectively about climate change and health would be helpful to them. Uh, and then 65% said that uh, patient education materials on climate change and health would be uh, useful to them. Well, let, let, me, let me stay with this. Uh, so again, just to summarize in your discussion section, uh, you note know again, professional education, policy statements, action alerts. Uh, and then there was, I'll add, um, 
a majority survey participants said guidance on how to make their workplace sustainable would be helpful for them amongst the other um, findings uh, you just noted. So that certainly sets an agenda or helps set an agenda uh, relative to education uh, and activism. So in reading your discussion, my thoughts, since I I spend my time on policy, is to what extent, uh, for example, uh, do you believe it would be helpful, and this is pretty obvious, for CMS to start providing some of these resources uh, under their Medicare, Medicare and Medicaid programs. Yeah. Uh, so th- this is sort of outside of my wheelhouse, actually, <laughs> as a survey researcher. I, I, I'm not involved too much on the policy end of things. Um, yeah, so but, I don't know if I, but I your feel... But your research findings certainly um, point us in a certain direction, right? Sure, sure. So what? How would you? What? What would be your based on your your study? What would be your recommendations or suggestions relative to how to um, uh, put this research or put these findings into practice? Um, sure. Uh, so you know, it it really depends on the specific barrier, um, and I think you know. Uh, a variety of organizations um, can help contribute to to closing the gaps uh, between some of these attitudes and behaviors. So um, some of the suggestions that have been uh, floated out there in terms of uh, addressing time constraints, uh, you know, professional societies as well as uh, employers can set more aside, uh, set aside more time for this kind of work. Um, There have been discussions, at least for academic health professionals uh, about creating sabbaticals for them where they could have more time to engage in policy act- advocacy work. Um, other other uh, folks have suggested creating a menu of actions that health professionals could take that are organized according to the time investment required for each action so that they would have a good good sense of what fits into their schedule and what what makes the most sense for them mm-hmm. uh, versus more ambitious actions. Um, and then there's also been some research suggesting that um, perhaps not surprisingly, the more health professionals that are stepping up and, and becoming leaders in this space, it diffuses the responsibility of, uh, to some extent and the time, the time investment required when you have more individuals taking on uh, responsibility for organizing and mobilizing uh, their peers to do this kind of work. Okay, okay. So the, the, the other way to phrase this or ask this question is: so where does this, uh, where does, where do these research findings lead you relative to uh, building further or uh, or building on this research or, or getting further down the road on on understanding where we are relative to um, uh, professional understanding and involvement on the subject. Sure. So <laughs> that's a much easier way for me to, to answer this question. Um, so, so a few thoughts. Um, so we, at, at, at the moment, you know, we've got some ideas about, uh, the barriers that inhibit health professionals from, uh, engaging in more advocacy around this. Um, in terms of next steps with research, uh, our, our idea is to work with uh, certain organizations that help to mobilize health professionals around this issue 
and actually test out what sorts of information or messages are most effective at mobilizing and motivating these health professionals to take actions. Um, we actually use some, some of the survey data from this same survey uh, to analyze it, uh, looking at what are the strongest predictors of uh, willingness to engage in advocacy. And what that study found is that the perception that health professionals had a responsibility to engage in this kind of advocacy work was one of the strongest predictors of willingness to actually engage in that advocacy. So um, promoting more messages that really communicate why health professionals should feel a responsibility to engage on climate change can help to address those kinds of gaps. Mm -hmm. um, and then also uh, leadership training, right? So, uh, you know, we know that health professionals feel that uh, training uh, both, both professional education on climate change and health, as well as training on how to communicate effectively about uh, climate change and health, they see it as uh, potentially useful. Um, what we don't know is how to how to structure those kinds of training programs to really effectively achieve the outcome of increasing their willingness to engage in advocacy around around this issue. Okay, thank you. Let me just, if I could, ask two uh, 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 further questions. One is, uh, does your research work inform the Lancet Countdown on Health Report? Uh, you know, it does not. Well, uh, that's why I asked the question. <laughs> I would hope it would. Because they do yeah. discuss, they do discuss this issue, uh, in some ways, uh, specifically to what extent is the industry addressing or involved? And they actually provide quantitative data relative to, uh, divestment, et cetera. So my, my question is really at, at least encouragement, because I think this kind of research would be very important and contribute substantially to the countdown report. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, um, uh, is this a question for the podcast or is this uh, just a question between you and me? Well, it, yes, yeah, it's for listeners. Um, um, a, it's to encourage listeners to read the countdown report that's out every year and also to pay attention to where health professionals are relative to uh, uh, related subjects discussed. So maybe I'll just leave the question uh, begged. Let me go to, and I, I intentionally mentioned, so when Frumpkin and Benjamin sent their letter to the secretary in early April, I noted in the intro it had 65 co-signers. These were medical uh, professional associations. And I, I mentioned a few specifically in hopes that listeners will follow up and say, look at, for example, the Alliance for Nurses for Health Environments, National Association of Pediatric uh, Nurse Practitioners, etc. So that's, you know, intentional. My question is, since you signed on, you're familiar with those organizations that signed on as well. What's your sense of, of these organizations in some and how they can be uh, further engaged? I mean, they already have – the titles of these organizations are pretty intentional or obvious. Alliance for Nurses for Health Environments. I mean, <laughs> you, you can guess what their mission is. So how further can they be, um, can they be helpful or contribute? I mean, are they now on your mailing list? I hope they are. <laughs> um, yeah, so I'm trying to think. I mean, yes, I'm familiar with Annie. Um, just trying to think about how best to answer your question. Um, how, about I, how about I address it this way? So, so actually within the survey, uh, this, this kind of data doesn't get reported because it obviously violates anonymity. Right. Um, 
But we actually, after we asked people whether they were personally willing to participate in a campaign uh, to lobby their national leaders on strengthening their Paris Climate Agreement commitments, um, we, we then followed that question up with their the ability to provide us and volunteer their email address to receive more information about that. Um, and people got that question, not just if they said, yes, they're willing to participate in that campaign, but also if they said that they might uh, support that campaign, even if they can't personally participate, they got that question, even if uh, they said they might participate, but they need further information. So we now have uh, a bunch of email addresses from, from participants in this survey. And actually, we're going to use those, uh, the Global Climate and Health Alliances, in the process of, of reaching out and uh, informing those individuals on how they can uh, further participate in these kinds of efforts going forward. Well, that's helpful. That's interesting information. So that's, that's I'm, I'm glad you uh, volunteered that. So with that, John, we're at about our time. So again, very useful, uh, helpful work. So my congratulations on the effort. and I wish you every success going forward. So thank you again. Thanks for having me. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.